What is up, everybody? This is Ryan. I have Andrew Peterson on today, who's the CEO and co-founder of Signal Sciences. Went from zero to an $825 million sale in under eight years. Absolutely amazing. This guy drops bombs of things that I've never heard any other speaker talk about or guest on the show. So you're not going to want to miss it. Check it out. How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have a very special guest with me today. I have Andrew Peterson. Andrew is the CEO and co-founder of Signal Sciences, where he led the company in the creation of their industry-defining tech platform to protect websites and mobile apps and APIs, which led to an $825 million sale. $825 million, that's right. To Fastly in under eight years, he wrote the book, Cracking Security Misconceptions. On top of it, too, he's done a lot of other things as he started off in Google, over at Google, and as well as Etsy, where he met his co-founders. Andrew, man, happy to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's fun to be here. Yeah, I know. It's, it's hard to have that amped up enthusiasm like you had the first two times because we're on, on take three, but we'll, we'll get into it this time. So um, real quick, what, what I want to do is give everyone a sense before we get into your story and lessons learned, just kind of your background. So I know you're around what the $15 million plus kind of range-ish when you sold. Is that about right? Yeah, it's, it was around then for sure. Okay. And then what was your primary go-to-market strategy to get to that point? Yeah, it was a, we had an enterprise sales motion. Um, so we sold through sort of direct to large, uh, large and medium sized businesses as big as the, you know, Fortune 10 uh, and to a bunch of mid, mid market sized companies, let's call it uh, 500 to 1000 employees. Um, and we did that through direct sales. We also worked through channel sales uh, a, a lot as well as part of what we adopted in the process of building the company and scaling it over time. So um, Got some good exposure to that. We didn't have the like product-led growth stuff that a lot of folks uh, are adopting now. We didn't have a lot of freemium motions to the process. And that was a bunch of it was by design. A bunch of it was kind of uh, by way of what type of product set that we were in in the cybersecurity space. But um, yeah, that gives you, it gives you an idea and, and uses an idea of like where we were coming from. Yeah, I mean, that's fantastic. I love enterprise. That's my background. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of interesting stuff that you did there. Uh, what about your, so that's your go to market. What was your team size at the time? When we, so when we sold the company, it was about 175 employees. Um, and yeah, I, I was, I was employee one. And so we went through a lot of different iterations and, you know, compared to a, a company that size, you know, big, 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 massive companies, you think like, oh, well, zero to 175 is probably not that big. Um, and there's not that many transitions that you're going through. But if you imagine you go from a team size of five to 10, that's doubling the number of people on the team. And every time that you're doubling the number of people on the team, things actually change pretty dramatically in terms of what the business operations look like, what that relationships look like for the people on the team. So you go through a lot of, the, a lot of those doubling of the team experiences in, in eight years going from zero to 175. Oh, yeah. I, I can imagine. I mean, that's, that's yeah. There, there's a lot of, even though it's not a massive number, there's, yeah, there's massive magnitudes of difference that you experience as a company. Well, what and, about and, like, well, the, the types of things that you have to do to be successful with five employees are very different than the types of things you have to do to be successful, even with 20 employees. And so that's, um, 
there's a discipline in understanding what you can and can't actually achieve, even with a small number of people on the team and making sure you're not biting off more than you can chew, right? Yeah. Well, well let's dig into that later because that's something I definitely want to, I want to hit on. Absolutely. Uh, Cause I know you, you know, I know you got, I know you got more to give on that area. I could tell. Right. <laughs> sure. uh, so what about your solution? What exactly did, you know, signal sciences, what do you guys do? How does it work? Yeah. So, so uh, one of the, one of the great things uh, about our acquisition is that we haven't changed the product at all. In fact, we've in, invested in it and fast has done a great job of continuing to grow on what we built already, but the, essentially we protect websites. We protect mobile applications, um, the, the most basic example that I tend to give to folks that aren't, uh, you know, sort of cybersecurity nerds like me is uh, somebody's trying to uh, hack into your website uh, and hack into your account on a website using a bunch of different, you know, passwords and trying to guess your password. We'd be able to identify what's going on, identify that bad person in the process of them trying to do that and, and actually block them, like, like f- functionally and um, proactively block that from happening. Wow. Okay. So that's obviously a huge use case. Uh, outside of that, I guess, like, were you bootstrapped from the beginning or were you funded or how did it, how did that kind of take, I should say, um, manifest itself? Yeah, we, we took venture capital funding from the beginning. Um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend that for everybody that's building a company. I think this is a conversation you need to have with your, your founders and, you need to understand if your business is actually well suited for taking venture capital in the first place. But for us, um, you know, my, me and my two other co-founders, we were aligned on what we wanted to do from, from a growth perspective and how we wanted to actually build the business. And, lu- you know, luckily we had a business that was well suited for, um, for taking venture capital in the first place. And <laughs> luckily we had people that would take a chance on us and give us venture capital at the beginning. But yeah, that's, that's how we grew. Well, and, and that, you know, I think that's a great, great area to kind of dig into. So I guess my question for you is why would you decide to take on venture capital then? And, and you, why would it not be a, a good decision as well on the other side of the coin? So the, the, there's a lot of different trade-offs that you take between taking venture capital or not. But one of the things that I tell a lot of other founders when I go through the process of talking to them when they're thinking about what to do here is that, you know, and there's, look, there's exceptions to this rule, but I would say that if you take venture capital, you have three outcomes for the company. The company is going to go public, the company is going to get sold, or the company is going to die. And there's not, there's not an option there where you can say, hey, we're going to continue to run the company in perpetuity, uh, you know, try to take off a bunch of uh, profits from, from building a profit machine and just run that forever. That's not how VC-backed businesses are, are, are built. And so a lot of what that decision comes down to is, are you trying to optimize building a business for growth? Or are you trying to optimize building a business around control and controlling the business? Because the other thing that that comes along with with you know taking venture capital money is that, and this is probably really intuitive to some people, but sometimes it's not too intuitive to others. Which is every time that you raise funding from a venture capital firm, and that's kind of how it gets talked about in colloquial you know stories and stuff that come out. You're selling percentage ownership of your company to them. And so the more and more that you raise from a funding perspective, the more ownership you cede over to someone else that both you as founders do not like own the company as much anymore and your employee base doesn't own the company as much anymore. So I think that's, and, and, and knowing when you get on that route of raising one round of venture capital, it's not just one, 
you're going to be like, you're essentially on a path once you raise one round that you're going to be raising many more rounds as you continue to grow. This was not something that was intuitive to me when we started the company. We thought, you know, I naively thought, hey, you could raise one round of funding and then you could become self-sustaining and profitable and then you, and then you keep growing. That's just not how that business is set up and, and is set up to operate. Um, so I think having some background and understanding what those trade-offs are is a really important part of figuring out what is the right path for you and your business. Yeah, I, I think that's great insight. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's one of those things. It's like you either, you either get on that train or you don't, right? <laughs> it's almost binary. It's like you can't be half pregnant, right? Like, yeah. Well, and I, I, you know, I think I've, I've even seen examples of people where they're like, oh, we'll take a little bit of venture capital and, and sort of see what happens. And I'll, I'll tell you from experience of seeing folks do that is that they end up not being able to optimize for either. They don't get to grow as fast because they don't take as big of rounds to be able to invest in hiring, you know, hiring faster and basically deploying the capital so that you can grow faster. And they end up actually selling more of the company over time because they're not getting as good of rates because they're not growing as fast as other companies that are growing. So this is why I generally tell people, I was like, you really need to think of this as a binary decision. You either take this money or you don't. And, you know, all these sort of, well, what if I take a little bit now and see what happens? Um, I've just never really seen that work out well. Now, I'm sure a ton of people will be able to have examples of this actually working. Um, Just hasn't been my experience. So what element of control do you give up by taking on VC money? I mean, some of it depends on what's actually in the structure of the deal that you have with your investors, right? And so some of this, a lot of times it's very common that uh, a round of venture capital comes along with, we're going to have a board seat and we're going to form a board and the board is going to have these explicit, uh, you know, decision-making powers uh, about, uh, about what you can do with your essentially various aspects of your business. This is part of what you pay lawyers to do in the process of these things. They, they, they come in and they negotiate some of the fine points of these things. Um, side note, uh, I would say if you are thinking about raising venture capital money for your company, I would 100% try to get a lawyer that has done this many, many times. Um, <laughs> lawyers get a bad rap in the world. <laughs> like some for good reasons, some some not. But I would say that like this is a counterintuitive thing that most of the time, because they've gotten such a bad reputation, that you as a founder say, I want to avoid having a lawyer involved as much as possible because I don't want to pay them their crazy rates that they have. I will tell you they are worth every penny if you get the right ones because they will really help you to navigate what is um, a normal set of uh, rules around who has power in, in the context of these things, right? And so, you know, I... I think if you don't have that type of guidance, you can be in a position where you really give up a lot of power. That's not just ownership, but it's decision-making power in the process of what happens with your business down to like, you know, investor gets the ability to approve budget line items over a thousand dollars, right? Like I've, I've seen that proposed and stuff, not necessarily for our company, but I've seen it for other companies. And I'm like, Oh, you, you know, really? really Yeah. A thousand dollars. I mean, it like put it X, put in X dollar amount, but like it's yeah, been right. really low to the point of, uh, you know, it's going to be disruptive to the business and how fast you can actually move if you're constantly having to get board approval and things like that. Right. So oh if you don't have a great lawyer or, you know, some type of person that's helping you to walk through this, you know, you really can get kind of walked, walked over in, in some of the process of, of building this, this structure. 
Hello, this is Ryan here. Real quick, if you are enjoying this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment or review. If you want more help or just want to learn more about what the top SaaS CEOs and founders are doing, check out my website at www.ryanstaley.io. Join my newsletter, check out other free content resources I have there, and let me know if you want to scale your business. Now back to the episode. What would you say is your your biggest lessons learned then from just going through this experience and and taking it to sale? Because obviously you've had a lot of success, so it'd be great to hear like what are the biggest lessons learned, mistakes along the way? <laughs> so many. <laughs> uh, one of them is like like there, there's some sort of platitude stuff that, that that I can say, but some of this stuff is true, which is like perseverance is really important. Um, there's like this graph that people show that like you know what people perceive your company growth curve looks like and it's just this like linear like you know (laughs) like line from uh, up into the right and like what the actual growth is and it's you know it's like squiggly line that goes all over the place that's as true from a revenue perspective as it is from an emotional perspective and so like really really understanding that um this is going to be a journey and and you're you're kind of along for it and and it's it's a it's a marathon that feels like a sprint all the time. I think is a really important thing to get your head around, um, and and especially for venture backed businesses, one of the things that I I tell folks when they're thinking about starting companies is um, this is not a this is not a two year commitment, right? Like if you're thinking about founding a company and you're going to be a leader of people that you're asking them to you know uproot their lives and and join you on this journey to to be building something, you need to be committed for I'd say at least ten years. Right. And maybe the company goes, goes shorter than that. Maybe it goes longer than that. But if you don't have that in your mind where you're saying, I'm blocking out the next 10 years to devote to building this thing and this dream that we have, um, I don't think you're ready. Like it, it might not be the right time to, to build the business. Right. Or, or it might just not be the right thing for you in, the, in, in that point of your life. So, um, yeah, like, long-term commitments and making sure that you're in a, a good mental headspace to be able to go through those ups and downs over a long period of time. I think that's something that's um, good for anyone and a lesson learned for me. Um, it's something on the more kind of technical side that this is, it's kind of a joke, but kind of not like people say first time founders in the technology space, think about their tech a lot. And second time founders think about go to market and how to get that tech into the hands of customers. Um, and, I find myself really a having learned that lesson myself um, and b passing that same type of knowledge on to the next generation of founders that are, that are coming up, which look, the lesson there is saying you can build the best technology in the world. um, And it's not going to be a field of dreams thing where it's like, if you build it, they will cut like that, that, that does not build a business. Like you really need to think about, how you're going to get what you are building into the hands of customers, regardless of how amazing the thing is that you're building. And, um, you know, I know I'm sort of preaching to the choir because you've been on the business side for a long time, but you'd be surprised at how it's hard to find people that have both um, really incredible tech insight and innovation in their bones, thinking about how they can build something that's brand new. And then talking to them about, well, you know, how do you build uh, the the perfect um, lead generation uh, tracking tool to make sure that you're identifying the right leads and that you're, you know, you're targeting them with the right drip campaigns. Like 
they're just like, that's not why they started the company, right? Like that's absolutely not what gets them out of bed in the morning, gets them, gets them fired up. And so, you know, understanding that like that is a, it's it, sometimes it's a necessary evil for some of these folks that are really into the technology innovation piece, but it's something that is going to be the lifeblood of how you build your business um, and, and how you get your amazing technology into the hands of the people that really need it to solve the problems that they have. So um, that's, that's been a huge lesson learned is like, make sure that you're thinking about uh, go to market as soon as you can, even if, even if it may not be the wheelhouse that is either why you started the company or, um, you know, the thing that you're particularly good at. Um, can we, can we dig into that before? Yeah, I, yeah. Cause like there's some good stuff there that I, I'd love to hear. Like that's one of the things that like, so I've interviewed probably, I don't know, 80 CEOs, SaaS CEOs this year and the range of go to market motions that I've heard people use is all over the board, right? In a good way. It's not not a bad thing, right? But very unique combinations that those leverage. So with yours, like you mentioned that it's almost like go to market before product, right? Or comboed with product at the beginning, like hand in hand. So I guess like, first of all, and this is just like more of a A or B, but like what percentage of founders do you think think of the tech first and then go to market second? Like, if you if you had to summarize it just from your yeah, I mean, a lot more first time founders think about tech, right? I mean, like again, this kind of gets back to my sort of pithy comment, but it's not pithy. Like second time founders are very very focused on go to market and understand that that's a really hard problem to solve. Um, but percentage wise, I, I don't know. It probably depends on the type of business that you're in, but like the infrastructure technology stuff that that I'm in the world of, like. Uh, most people are just focused on the tech. They are. I'd say over 75% of the folks that I talk to are focused on the tech, which yeah. you know, I, would, I also wouldn't say is like the worst thing in the world. It's just, it's one piece of building a business, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to have an amazing product so people keep coming back, but there's so much noise out there right now and there's so many options and there's, I mean, look, even if you just look at it from a sheer content perspective, I think what the world's created like three times the amount of content over the last four years as the entire history because of the proliferation over the internet, something crazy like that. So, so let me ask you this, Andrew. So like, what was your go to market, you know, on the enterprise side, like how did you handle that to get such good results and then such a high multiple in a short period of time? I mean, the, the, the short version is, and again, we like, we had so many different iterations of learning this over time of, uh, you know, we tried, I would say there's a different answer that I would have about how we got off the ground and got our first few customers um, and their, how we really scaled over time. And I'd say both of them really come back to like, we hired great people, right? Like we, we have some experience with this. And I think like the stuff that me and my other founders brought to the table was mostly brute force effort and the ability to learn and uh, adapt quickly uh, and, and be humble enough to understand that we don't know everything and we need to actually hire other great people and learn from them. So like, you know, the old adage of like hire people that are smarter than you, like it's again, like it's kind of a, people have heard that a lot. Uh, you'd be surprised at how often that doesn't actually happen in practice. Um, so it takes a fair amount of, uh, humility and, uh, and a certain type of ego to understand that, Yes, you can hire other people, and you can and you can um, learn from them in the process of being the one that actually started the company. Um, but at the same time, like you can't completely abdicate responsibility for those areas. 
And so I think like the thing that I think we were successful at was both hiring good people, but then being really involved in helping to solve the process of that. And so we had mm-hmm. lots of people on our sales team that would constantly tell us like, you know, you're some of the some of the most sales friendly founders that we've worked with. You'll jump on calls, you'll talk to customers, you'll help to like, you know, break down what their needs are, you'll translate that back into what technology we need to actually build to make these deals work. Like those are things that you really want engaged founders to be a part of that, I think, to be successful. Because if you're not, um, and you kind of, yeah, this concept of advocating responsibility rather than delegating and be a, being a part of it, then you just basically say, oh, sales, this is your job. I'm going to go as the founder or CEO, I'm going to keep going and work on the technology. If you can't sell it, that's on you. Um, building a business is not just about building technology. Like building a business is about building all of the component pieces of how you bring a solution to a customer. And that includes like getting them to adopt it. It includes getting them to procure it. It's, it's, you know, structuring the deal. It's all of that. So I think when, when we really figured out how to scale, we had both an incredible team and we were really open to learning the stuff that we did not know um, about enterprise sales to be able to do that. Yeah, I think there, I think that that's huge because I see that a lot too with folks where it's just like, like, all right, it's not my specialty. I'm going to punt, hire someone. They got it. And then that person doesn't work out in nine months. They're, they keep starting all over again, right? Like just because it's, they, they had zero involvement and they're just like, like trying to wash their hands of it. They, so they passed the buck. Exactly. Right. Like, yeah. Which isn't fair. Right. It's not, it's not really fair for that other person's success either. Um, because it's, nobody it's, can. Go ahead. No, I mean, this is something that we talked about in the company early on also. And, and something that I, I certainly personally believe in. And by the way, like there's lots of different ways to build successful companies. And like, I would be the first one to say that, like, there's no blueprint for this. And like, this is in some ways actually what, you know, to your point about like, I've talked to 80 CEOs in the last year and like, they all have kind of a different way that they've been able to, to, to build companies and get successful. Like there's an art to this stuff. It's not all science, right? When it comes to, okay, here's just the blueprint for how to do it. And by the way, like if it was that easy, like everybody would do it. Right. So there's a lot of things that you need to navigate to figure out for your specific business, for your specific team, for the people that you're around, what's going to be that recipe for success. So like I sort of caveat all this with that. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I, I think you need to be identifying very early on, like what are the strengths of what you're being able to take to the market from a technology perspective or, or what your customers are looking for and making sure that, you know, you package that up, not just in a technology, but you package it up in a way that like they're going to receive that solution and be able to be able to have success for them. Right. Yeah. I, I think you nailed it. Uh, so I guess like just to, to kind of shift gears a little bit, like in, and I'm sure everybody's thinking this, but how do you build a company from scratch and, and get like a 600 X multiple for, 835 million in seven years, right? Like I just like, like walk through like how someone pays that level of multiple for something and like how much, how did you create the value that you did to achieve that? Because that's fascinating in my opinion. Uh, So this is not, again, this is not like a blueprint type of thing, right? And so I think every every company is going to be a little different in how you can sort of achieve multiples like that a lot of what drives multiples to be honest is like what market you're in 
right? And being in cybersecurity, understanding that like the market for who could buy our product was essentially anyone that had a website, which is, you know, I mean, it turns out to be essentially the world, right? And so <laughs> uh, you think about that and then you, can, th- then you sort of think about like, what types of businesses can you be working with that can have, you know, I'll, I'll use the sacred word synergies, right? Like where you are able to take one product, it, like apply it to an existing business somewhere else and actually get a lot of leverage to be able to help grow that business and your own together. Um, building that type of both partnership and, um, and, and vision I think is kind of the key to how a lot of these types of bigger acquisitions can happen from that perspective. And that's, that's something that, you know, as we, as we were working with, um, with Fastly, like it's a, they're a very natural, like you, you, you may not know sort of the specifics about our industry, but they are a very, very natural um, complementary technology for how we can sell stuff together. So we knew that we'd be able to sell more of our product. They'd be able to sell more of their product. And that's sort of, again, what creates these, um, you know, beautiful buzzword synergies uh, around building a business. So uh, again, there's not like sort of one thing, but like market certainly drives the stuff, growth rate drives it. And then being able to have a story and trust with the company that is interested in acquiring you is a big part of that. Timing is also a massive part of it, right? Like a year ago, two years ago, the type of multiples that were being thrown around for companies in the technology space, anywhere in the technology space were much higher than they are today given the, you know, changes in the economy, right, in the last six months. So I can't control that. Like, you know, the buyer can't control that. And so there's some of this that's just serendipity and we got lucky, right, in the in the process of it. So some you can plan for, some you can't. So, yeah, and I, and I think you're, you're being humble with some of that, right? Um, at, at the same time, though, it make, makes sense because, like, basically Truebill, which has been a guest on the show, the, the, one of the founders of Truebill, did the same thing with rocket money, right? Where they acquired them. I think it was like five years for like a billion dollars. So similar ish type for you. But what they did is they essentially like offset um, a lot of the dependency on the mortgages, which was highly infrequent to somebody that was constantly on the app. And then they would have visibility to all the money that they're spending. Right. He didn't say that. I'm just doing the math. Right. (laughs) So, so then you know where the mortgages lay and everything like that. So I guess like, but but to take it like one step further, and I think that framework that you you, you kind of broke down was awesome. Like, I mean, it's a little it's a little financey, right? Because like a lot of these things are are financey around. Okay, well, what's your market? What's the market multiples? And you started thinking about these things and being like, well, that feels very abstract. But the reality is, like, you know, you have a growth rate, you have a gross margin of the profitability of your product. You have you know what is the story of of integrating that product with somebody else's somebody else's company. And that spits out some type of algorithm for how you actually like create a growth plan together with that company. And so the stronger all of those components can be, that's what's going to drive a really big outcome. Because guess what? It's actually going to be finance people that drive some of this outcome because you have to have some justification for talking about this to, to, to any company that's buying this stuff, right? Yeah, I think, I think that's... That's really tough. I mean, that, the simplicity of it's great because it's true. It, it eventually does just come down to numbers and results, right? At the end of the day, or perceived results or projected results, right? So that's um, the foundation, and then like the the relationship and the people are are the thing that I think actually get deals over the edge, right? And they oh, yeah. they they get them over over the line. All right, so we're getting close on time, so I want to be sensitive to that. So I guess like 
what would you say right now is is kind of like the future of where you see things going in tech? <laughs> um, you know, what's interesting, like there's more and more tools now for people to be, be able to, um, again, this, I don't want to use jargon on this, but you're like, you can abstract a lot of the component parts of your technology stack to businesses that do these things. And so what's happened there is like, if you think about, let's call it 15 years ago, like what's going to make you a successful tech startup? It might've been longer than 15 years ago, but like maybe 15 to 20. Could you buy hardware? And did you have racks that you could install the hardware on and actually run something? Okay. Like that's very different than 10 years ago. It was probably, you know, can you do agile development? Can you launch code quickly? Can you get things out the door? And now all of those things are sort of assumed because there's so much infrastructure that's built in from like AWS and all the rest of the players that are around this space that you can get functionality up and running really quickly. And so I think, I think what's changing and what the future of tech is, is it's really honing more and more and more in on what is the thing that makes your business very, very unique compared to others. And it's not going to be what hardware you're running on. It's not going to be your software stack. It's not going to be your software process. It's really going to come down to what's that value add thing that you're solving a problem that nobody else can solve. And so I think that's, um, you know, and in some ways, this is actually why I, I think, and I focus a lot on go to market because that's the tech side. Like you're, you're getting narrower and narrower with what your differentiation is. And so Mm -hmm. I think this is where, having a go-to-market that's particularly amazing is actually having a bigger and bigger impact on the trajectory and outcome of companies compared to what just their core functionality is. That's insightful. You're the first person that said that on the show that like kind of the consolidation of this availability of tech and in, in, in making that simpler and simpler and then more emphasis on go-to-market. So I'm going to ask one, one more bonus question and then we'll wrap sure. it up, right? Because you, yeah. you got me thinking here. So if you were to start a company from scratch today, what would be your preferred go-to-market and how would you approach it? It's a really interesting question because I've seen, I've seen founders actually go from like, hey, I was just in enterprise and so now I'm going to go to you know, a freemium model and they're going to get up to, uh, up to speed. Um, I've seen a lot of people go into open source models where you get sort of natural adoption stuff happening. Um, I, if I were to do another one, I... I think I would want essentially the best of both worlds. Like I'd want to be able to have some product led growth, like freemium downloadable testing like path. Cause there's a lot of, especially early adopters who like, they like that. They don't want to talk to a, a salesperson. They don't want to talk to your, go to, they don't want to be sold to, they don't want to be marketed at, right. They want to just like, Hey, I want to go test your technology and I want to adopt it and I want to buy it on my own. And I think that's a totally normal and rational way to buy things there's also like an entirely different set of buyers that really expect to, I want a phone call. I want to talk to somebody. I want to actually go through the process of having you walk me through this. And a lot of that is through the channel still, right? Like, and you're still working with value-added resellers and, and resellers across the world and certainly across the United States. And so, you know, I, I think the, the ideal scenario is being able to have something that can really go through both of those motions. And by the way, any company that has any level of success at the product-led growth stuff or the open source models, they move to enterprise eventually. Like enterprise is in everybody's future. And so the question is, 
can you adopt that enterprise and can you get a successful enterprise model going earlier than others? And, and can it be self-sustainable to be able to do that? And so, you know, it's sort of a, I think most people would say, oh, you need to kind of go one path or the other. But I would actually say that like you can do both and enterprise is always going to be an eventuality if you get to the large, large scale scale that, you know, I, I would expect to, to, to be able to get to in the future. That's awesome, man. Well, I guess, um, and I could, did you got like a couple more minutes or no? Or do you yeah, got to wrap? Sure, sure. Yeah. All right. You, you got me. Cause like, that's, that's intriguing. So I'm seeing a lot of product like growth slash enterprise motions comboed. So I guess, you know, in, in terms of that, you're like, okay, well, enterprise is in everything, right? And you need to eventually get to that. Cause a lot of, I see that at product like growth, a lot of times once they hit the 10 million mark, then they want to move up into the enterprise. So I guess like, so you would take it both PLG focus plus enterprise. How did you operationalize that when you, you did your company? Cause you said you started tacking into really big companies fast. Like how did you penetrate them? How did you get into it? And how did you get the flywheel moving really fast from like a, a customer acquisition perspective? So this is a good question that I've, I've again, spent a fair amount of time kind of, advising other other folks when they're starting to build their companies as well and and um i think that the the key is when when we started we had been familiar with the space that we were building uh you know our company in for a while and um not only familiar with but we were building some open source tools and and um trying to solve this problem in-house at when we were at etsy before and so the benefit for us is we were talking about publicly the solutions that we were trying to bring to this stuff from a philosophical perspective for, for years. And so we had a fair amount of people that were following, um, you know, us before we even started the company. And so when we started the company, people were basically like, look, whatever you're working on, like we want to kind of be a part of what you're working on. And so I think that gave us a very competitive advantage when it came to getting off the ground quickly. Um, uh, is that people knew what our work was before they knew our philosophy around how we were trying to solve problems and they they trusted us by way of of sort of being uh, giving a lot of talks and and trying to give honestly trying to give advice to other people in the industry about how they could solve this stuff themselves. Realized they couldn't and realized they needed a solution. So that that was one of the impetuses of why we started the company in the first place. So that's a sort of sort of part of it. And so what the the sort of advice that I give to other founders on this stuff is, look, that might not be the path that you go down is like, you know, building some stuff in house and talking about that. Uh, you know, it's one path that you can go down. But I would say, the more that you can work on validating either the technology or the problem or the solution ahead of starting your company, it's just going to give you a head start. And so like, mm-hmm. you know, let's say a year ago, when it was, it was a lot easier or very different market to raise money and raise capital. Um, you know, some people could say like, look, I'm just going to leave my job and go raise capital and not have anything to show for it at the beginning. Right. And I think as markets get a little tighter, like they have over the last six months, you know, maybe you don't, maybe you don't leave your day job right now and you work nights and weekends on trying to, you know, develop the, the, what is now a hobby, but what you want to turn into a company in the future. And yeah, you're going to, you're going to get a head start on the market when you actually go out to both build the company and, and, you know, leave your, leave your day job to actually go do it. So uh, get that hustle on, find ways where you can both validate your product, uh, validate your, the problem, um, get feedback on the technology early on and do it before you, uh, you know, leave, leave and, and start the company in earnest because 
it's just going to give you a leg up on on how you can get to market faster really that's a great insight do you do you think there's any risk in terms of evangelizing your solution or your product before it's built uh it's hmm. an interesting question i i i actually tell people like one of the things that i suggest is well, there, look, there's a difference between evangelizing something, right, by by being very proactive, let's say, on, like, your social media or something about a, about a problem and trying to get some way of validating, like, the problem space. One of the ways that I think people can, and I've seen others validate the problem space really well, is, like, get some landing pages, like, up on a website, put some marketing copy on that landing page, put a simple sign-up form to say, hey, if you're interested in, in uh, you know, learning more about when we have a solution to this problem, we're working on it right now, like put in your email address and then buy some AdWord campaigns or some, you know, some advertising campaign keywords to see what converts well. And that's going to give you some good insight. Like you don't need to have the solution ready yet, right? But you can basically guide people to those, to those web pages and say, What's, what are people actually signing up for? What are they converting on? Um, to give you some insight into what what you should be potentially building, right? And so, honestly, some of that is actually about even just wording, right? Like you might build a, a core solution for something, and you're like, how do like you should really be thinking, how are people going to find this, and what are they searching for right now that associates with the solution that I have, so that you can match up those things. Um, so some of it is literally just about wording, but some of it may be about like. I don't know if this is something that people actually want. Let's see. Let's, you know, take a thousand dollars and spend it on AdWords and spin up a couple of web pages and see what what people are clicking on and where they're going to. That's great, man. Love the simplicity. Well, Andrew, it was awesome having you on the show. I know we've gone past time, um, but it was an awesome interview. So appreciate you taking the time, man. Where can people find you? Where can they find out more about you and Fastly? Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty active on link, LinkedIn. So, um, you know, if you're if you're on that, I think it's a great professional platform to connect with other folks that are in the same industry. And I always like helping new folks that are looking for advice to start companies. So um, if you got questions, feel free to, to connect and reach out there. That's probably the best way to do it. Um, and if you have any uh, security needs of trying to secure web pages and, um, and websites, obviously you can you can ping me about that and I'll, I'll get you connected with our fine folks over at Fastly. Awesome, man. Well, thanks again, and we'll all see you on the next episode. Thank you for checking out The Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.